The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, March 1st, 2020, on the basis of Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. There's an old saying that goes like this, everybody dies twice. The first time is when they stop breathing, and the second time, that comes much later, is when somebody says their name for the very last time. Even if you've never heard that old expression before, I'm guessing you're familiar with this idea that long after people have died, they still remain alive, in a sense, as we hold them in our memories. And more than that, as we keep people alive in our memories, I think you'd agree that more often than not, we do so with the stories that we tell about them. I mean, think about when a a group of people gathers around to remember a loved one, they don't sit there simply reciting the cold, hard facts about that person. They sit around and they tell stories about the person that they loved. For example, if I wanted to, I suppose, I could tell you that my grandpa was the most frugal man that I've ever met in my life. But I would probably tell you instead about the one time from my childhood that I remember him scolding me. There was this two-foot piece of electrical cord that was left over from a project that he and my dad had done. And rather than keeping that piece of electrical cord for some future use, like the precious and priceless commodity that he thought it was, I found it and I started playing with it. And I turned it into a a rope and a whip and a hook and everything else that my little eight-year-old imagination could possibly think of. And by the time I was done with it, it could not possibly be used for any future project. And he wasn't too happy with me. Even long after people have died, we keep them alive in our memories. And more than anything else, we do so in the stories that we tell. And yet all by itself, I don't think that explains what has happened with the two people that we're going to be talking about today. The two people that we're talking about today are among the first human beings to have ever died. Both of them stopped breathing thousands and thousands of years ago. And yet both of them very much are alive and well in people's memories. Both of their names are known by millions, in fact, billions of people the world over. And not only that, but among the people who know their names, their names are all known for the same specific reason. Out of everything that happened in these, people lives, in these people's lives, there is just one story that everyone knows, the story that we're talking about today. I would imagine that you can guess that I'm talking about Adam and Eve and this story of the fall into sin. So why is that? What, what explains that these two people, long dead, are still alive in so many people's memories? Well, I think there's a perfectly logical explanation for it. It is because their story is actually not just their story. Their story is also our story. Each and every one of us have experienced what Adam and Eve experienced. Each one of us have fallen into sin the way that they did. Each one of us have tried to deal with our sin the way that they tried to deal with their sin. And most importantly, each one of us has seen God respond to and God deal with our sin the way that they saw God respond to and deal with their sin. In fact, it reminds me of another old expression. They say that the best way to try and get to know someone is to try and put yourself in their shoes. Well, with Adam and Eve, 
we don't actually have to try real hard to do that. We don't have to stretch our imaginations because in a very real way, each one of us is in their shoes. We have walked where they have walked. As we look at these verses from Genesis chapter 3 today, we're going to see that the footprints that were left in the Garden of Eden should look very familiar to us all. That sounds strange, I realize. So much of what happens in this story seems so unique to them and therefore foreign to us. They had this very specific command from God that out of all the trees in this beautiful garden where God had placed them, there was this one, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they weren't supposed to eat from. They were tempted to disobey God through this conversation with a talking snake. Their great big sin was that they ate a forbidden piece of fruit. And then as they tried to cope with the fallout of their sin, their first and most pressing concern was making coverings for themselves because they realized they were naked. None of that sounds remotely close to anything that you and I have ever experienced in our lives. Don't be fooled. You see, when the devil came and tempted Adam and Eve, it really wasn't all about that forbidden fruit. The devil wanted Adam and Eve to tempt or to, to doubt God's love and his care. He wanted them to doubt that he had their best interest at heart. He wanted them to think that there was something he was holding out from them, something that in spite of all the wonderful blessings that he had given them, something that he was still keeping to himself. Did God really say that you weren't allowed to eat from that tree? You know why that is, don't you? Because God knows that if you eat of that tree, then your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil just like he does. In other words, you will be like him. Listen to me, the devil said, and I will make you gods. Adam and Eve fell for that lie and it didn't take them long to realize that they had fallen for a lie. In just the few short verses that follow, we get a taste of every method, every trick, every single possible thing people do as they try and cope with their sin. They try and hide. They try and deal with their shame by covering it up. So they made coverings for themselves, and when they heard God coming, they tried to hide. When they were confronted with their sin, they denied it. They excused it. They blamed others for it. They even blamed God for it. Adam and Eve fell for that lie of the devil and it didn't take them very long to figure out the terrible, awful consequences of being so deceived. So do those footprints look at all familiar? They should. Sin, of course, comes in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. There are as many different varieties of forbidden fruit as you would find types of apples in the produce section at the grocery store. I can never keep them all straight. And yet, really, at the heart of each and every sin is the same lie that the devil told Adam and Eve. So a young toddler throws a temper tantrum when she doesn't get her way. An adult essentially does the same thing when he doesn't get his way. A married man starts up a romance with a woman who is not his wife because his marriage has grown stale, at least in his mind. An unmarried couple decides to start living together as though they were husband and wife, even though they're not husband and wife. A teenager bends to peer pressure just to be accepted by their group of friends. A suburban couple manages their schedules and their calendars and their budgets with one goal in mind, keeping up with the neighbors. Why do people do that? 
Why do we do those things? The very same lie of the devil is right at the heart of each and every one of them. One of them. In each and every case, the devil is saying to us, you know, God's really holding out on you. Sure, he's giving you some wonderful things, but he's still keeping his very best out of reach. And so if this is something you want, this is something you should have. You, you deserve it. In fact, you should be in control. You should be in charge. And if you listen to me, that's what will happen. If you listen to me, the devil says, I can make you gods. If that sounds familiar, then it should certainly also sound familiar how Adam and Eve tried to deal with their sin. If they introduced this art of trying to cope with sin's consequences, I think people today, including you and me, have perfected that art. Perfected the art of, of taking that sin, taking the shame and guilt, and, and just so very carefully and skillfully keeping it all hidden. The fighting and the arguing and the bickering that we do behind the doors of our home and behind the doors of our car instantly goes away and we plaster on a picture-perfect Instagram-ready smile as soon as we go out into public. People ask us how we're doing, and it's always fine and good, or, or at least okay, and very few people actually get the real answer. In fact, in our desire to, to make ourselves look good, we often take the people in our lives, just like Adam and Eve did, and, and rather than cherishing them and serving them as the wonderful blessings that God intended them to be, we actually use them. We use them as props in this little play that we're all carrying out, this play where we're the star of the show, and where the plot line is very simple, where the entire plot revolves around us making ourselves feel okay. And so our spouse or our kids are the object of our praise and our adoration as long as they make us look good and feel good about ourselves, but they quickly become the objects of our scorn and our anger when they disappoint. We don't need to use our imaginations too hard to try and put ourselves in the shoes of Adam and Eve. These footprints that they left in the garden are footprints that should look very familiar. The footprints of sin and its consequences completely cover our world. And of course, some of those footprints belong to us. Which makes it all the more remarkable that those weren't the only footprints that were left in the Garden of Eden. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God should have wanted nothing to do with them. God should have and certainly could have quarantined them and left them alone as if they had come down with a case of the coronavirus. But instead, God did something else. This is what we are told. That the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So when Adam and Eve made a complete mess of God's perfect creation, what did God do? God stepped into the mess. God came and found them. When they hid, he called out to them. When they lied and made excuses and blamed others for their sin, God was patient with them. And when it finally came time for God to speak, for God to address the sin they had committed, for God to express his wrath and his anger against that sin, for God to come up with a plan to provide the solution for that sin. God directed his words, not at them, but at the devil. God said this, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God announced that he was going to war. He was going to war, but not with Adam and Eve. He was going to war with the devil for Adam and Eve to win them back as his own, 
And as you might imagine, there were going to be casualties in this war, but not the casualties that you would expect. God said that he would crush the head of the devil. That's no surprise. But in the process, the devil would strike his heel. In other words, one future offspring of the woman, one individual male descendant of the woman, would face sin and its consequences instead of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they found out very quickly that when you bite into sin, sin bites back. But in his grace, God promised that that bite of sin would not latch on to the feet of Adam and Eve. Instead, it would latch on to the feet of God himself into this promised offspring of the woman. As you might know or as you might guess, God was talking about Jesus. So let me ask you, those footprints, the footprints of grace and the footprints of sin's cure, do those footprints look familiar? They should. What Adam and Eve could only see in very foggy details from a great distance away, you and I can see in crystal clear ultra HD. You and I can see that after centuries and centuries of waiting, after those footprints of sin just completely covering our world for so many years, God did, in fact, send his son. And God's own son stepped out onto the battlefield. It was no longer a garden. It was no longer a perfect paradise. Instead, as you heard, it was a desert. Jesus was not surrounded by everything that he could possibly need or want. Instead, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And because he did, Jesus really allowed himself to be faced with the same temptation, to be presented with the very same lie that Adam and Eve were presented with. Even though Jesus was fully God, Jesus willingly put himself in a position where he depended on his Father in heaven for absolutely everything that he needed. And because that was the case, the devil could come along and say to him as well, you know, I think he's holding out on you. This plan that he has, this mission that he sent you on, you don't want anything to do with that, do you? I can offer you something so much better if you'll just listen to me. Jesus put himself in our shoes. He was willing to go through every last thing that you and I experience, with one notable exception, of course. Jesus did so without sin. After centuries and centuries of the footprints of sin completely covering our world for the first time ever, the footprints of righteousness could be seen in earth's soil. And they didn't end there. Like I said, when Adam and Eve bit into sin, they found out very quickly that sin would bite back. And just as he had promised, that sting of sin, sin's consequences, would be faced not by Adam and Eve nor by their descendants, but by Jesus. As Jesus walked the earth, he walked into every corner of the mess that sin had caused. With every step that he took, sin was nipping at his heels until finally those footprints and those footsteps took him up that hill called Calvary to his cross. And there the consequences of sin did more than nip at his heels. There those consequences were driven all the way through his feet, his feet with blow after blow after blow. Jesus willingly paid that debt that our sin deserved. Jesus willingly paid that debt in full. The footprints of sin that Adam and Eve left in the Garden of Eden are not the only footprints to be found on the face of the earth. They are, they are not the only footprints that should look very, very familiar to us. Instead, the footprints of grace and the footprints of sin's cure that were left by Jesus, we see those. We see how they've been left too. 
And because that's the case, what that means is that no matter where our footprints might take us, our footprints will never be alone. No matter how deep, no matter how far we get into the world's mess that has been caused as a result of sin, we can always look down and see another set of footprints right there. Jesus has walked where we have walked. He has stood where we stand. He has gone through everything that we've gone through. And not only that, but those same footprints have also paved our path out. At certain points in our lives, our footprints will take us to places of deep guilt and deep regret. But Jesus' footprints have paved the path to complete forgiveness and full pardon. There will be times in our lives where our footprints take us to utter and horror shame over what we've done, where we want to do nothing but run and hide from others and even from ourselves. But Jesus' footprints have paved the path that lead to holiness and unconditional acceptance from God. Our footprints will lead us to times of sadness and sorrow where tears are streaming down our faces, but Jesus' footprints have paved the path to joy and hope. And of course, our footprints will lead us again and again to that place where it seems as though sin and Satan have won. They will lead us to the grave over and over and over again for friends, for family, and at some point that bell will toll for thee as well. And yet Jesus' footprints have paved the path beyond the grave too. They have paved the path that leads to life. Life beyond death, life for all eternity. As we continue this series entitled Familiar Terrain, we're going to see all the different places where Jesus has walked for us, all the different ways in which he has experienced what we have experienced. And because that is the case, you and I can be completely confident that one day the reverse will be true as well. That one day we will walk where Jesus has now walked. That one day we will stand where Jesus now stands. Because he was willing to make our barren and sin-marked terrain familiar to him. One day, the beautiful, green, lush pastures of paradise, that wonderful terrain, will most certainly be familiar to us as well. Amen. Amen.